Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. This is Dokken, by the way. Dokken Christmas music. What do you think of that? Yes, I know. Some of you are like, no, please, no. Um, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I was waiting for you specifically to see if you were going to say it back. I wasn't sure. Um, my name is Mike. Welcome. Um, next week is... Are we going to be here? No. Nope, nope, nope. We're going to meet Saturday um, instead of Sunday. And so we're going to meet at 4.30 and at 6 o'clock here in this room, Christmas Eve, glory, glory, hallelujah. And then Sunday is Christmas. So whether, whether this is a survivable time for you of year or an enjoyable time of year for you, um, it's here. It's here. It's we. It's a train coming seven days from now. So, uh, and, then, and then the week after that, we're going to meet on New Year's Day. So, oh yes, we're going to meet on New Year's Day. So the, the 40 of us that will be here will be excited and pray for the rest of you. It'll be awesome, but yes, we're going. So, uh, so that's a big deal. Do not come here next week at this time, although I don't think you'll have trouble remembering not to come. Um, but Saturday, uh, do come. Um, uh, we want to start, as we usually do, with some questions that we got from last week. So um, we'll do those. Uh, we'll fire up. This is, we highly encourage uh, skeptics and doubters and the curious. And so one of the ways we model that is we allow people and encourage people to text in. And uh, so we've got like nine this week. So, so there's some doozies. Here we go. Number one. This one's easy. Is the Christmas Eve service for the entire family? Yeah. Absolutely. I think we have child, we have uh, children's ministry like through first grade. So all, your kids will be with you. It will be glorious. Uh, they will be bored out of their minds. It will be fantastic. So yes, young kids should be here. Next. In your podcast this week, you talked a bit about how just as God wanted Israel to be for the nations, we as followers of Jesus are also to be for the nations. That said, how does that play out in the Vox Church setting, specifically in terms of donations? Next. I've always been a bit skeptical of how churches use donation money. Now, I'm sure you're the only one who's had that question. I've always been a bit skeptical about how churches use donation money in general. Could you talk a bit about how that looks for Vox? Okay, first of all, uh, that is a, uh, an unbelievably brilliant question and you can ask any time. We just audited our last six or eight months in terms of, hey, how are we doing? So here's what we discovered. Um, our, our, uh, our budget breaks down like this. 48% of what comes in goes to people. Um, salaries, uh, payroll. Uh, that is actually the lowest of any church I've worked at. Uh, we want to make it lower, but uh, that's right now... Uh, we started with paid staff. Normally, a church plant doesn't do that. Um, we did for lots of reasons we get into another time. Um, so 48%, of, I was actually surprised it was that low. I'm thrilled about that. Um, 35% is the second largest category, and that's the sweet other. That's ministry. And, and that can be anything from honorariums for folks up here 
to, um, to, we do lots of hospitality, so there's tons of food involved. We just did the holiday parties. We were paying for food if people couldn't uh, afford food or babysitting or whatever. Um, we pay, uh, if you give online, there are fees that go with that. Um, we, we pay, you know, uh, for, for expenses, for folks that are buying things for kids. I mean, it's just, it's just ministry in general for 35%. Uh, 10% is facilities. We, we rent this and we have no other facility. My house is the facility. So that's during the week. That's where the Vox headquarters is. Uh, and then uh, 7% is insurance. Uh, liability workers comp. Um, we have protection against um, uh, people named Christina who are short and Filipino. Um, that is, uh, sometimes she gets angry and we just don't know how to handle that. Now, now that we just realized, yeah, that's Christina right there. We just realized um, we're actually for, for the first time break, uh, just a little bit above breaking even. That is not the budget we want. That is what survival looks like right now. So we, we are ahead on a per week basis by $900, which we were thrilled about because we were losing money significantly every weekend for a while. And so uh, the, the budget that I just told you about does not reflect our vision. Our vision would be a third uh, of, towards people and payroll, a third towards ministry and a third out the door. We got a long way to go with that. Uh, that's ultimately where we want to end up. So I hope that helps. You can ask any question anytime. Next. Mike, bless you. You mentioned at the beginning of service that someone asked a question about why God allowed sin or our desire to sin to enter the world in the first place. What's the point of life between the trees? Could you please expand on this? This is something I've been pondering for a long time, but have been hesitant to ask. First of all, don't ever be hesitant to ask. That is, that is one of the most important questions of the Christian faith. Why does, does God... Did he initially put a tree in there that said don't touch, knowing they were going to touch? And then why does he allow evil today when he could just eradicate it out of existence? And so the traditional answer, and how do you answer this in 30 seconds? Any answer I give by its very brevity will be horrific in light of the evil that we see in our world. But the classic standard answer is this. God wants partners. He does not want puppets. And so as an act of his sovereignty, he limits his sovereignty to make room for the freedom of moral creatures. And for the freedom of moral creatures to be true freedom, they had to have the opportunity to not choose to love and worship God. And that freedom required uh, something other than trust to be an option. So the tree represented the first test of our parents uh, and the test of us, that all of us, um, e e even without a sin nature, um, will likely head to our, uh, our own devices. The original sin of the first parents was autonomy. Um, it wasn't murder. It wasn't bank robbery. It was simply saying, no, I'd rather my will be done than yours. Um, and that is something we see infecting in every human heart. The reason God permits it, according to this line of thinking, is to eradicate evil would mean to eradicate freedom. To eradicate freedom would mean to eradicate people. And God is, in, God, is in the, God is interested in people who come to love him. Love requires freedom, blah, 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 blah. All right? Now, does that, does that answer it? Eh. Yeah, there's still a lot left there, right? But that's what you get for 30 seconds. All right, next. 
Why do you guys keep throwing back at my own words at me? Why do you do this? You mentioned that Jesus never said in the Bible, believe in me and you'll go to heaven. Does anyone else actually say that in the Bible? Does Jesus ever say we don't believe in him, we're going to hell? Does anybody else? Seems a little weird that Jesus' message is all about love and he loves us, but if we don't love him back and believe in him, we're going to hell. Wow. So the hell conversation is coming more fully in January. So we've got about two or three more teachings on hell that will help with this. But one big question, one, the first part of the question is, hey, does anyone, does anyone say, well, believe in me and go to heaven? Some verses are read that way. So like the series we're in, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? And most evangelical Christians assume that eternal life means life in heaven. That is not what eternal life means. Eternal life is a kind of life that you can have now that extends into the heavens and into the new creation, okay? The second place this gets confusing is where Jesus talks about repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And people assume that means heaven is someplace else, whereas when Jesus talks about the heavens, he's meaning a realm of authority, not a location somewhere in space. So that's the reason it gets confusing. Does Jesus talk to people about hell? Of course he does, but it's religious people, uh, interestingly enough. And some of the images he uses of hell are not the torture chamber images, as we'll see in January, so hang on, all right? So many of my answers are like, okay, wait. Next. I'm having a problem praying. Anybody else? Since the election, I've been very frightened about the sort of country my child will grow up in the next four years. I've wanted to pray for his safety, but then I think of all the children and families in Aleppo. I'm sure mothers there prayed for mercy and safety for their children. It makes praying for my son's safety here feel futile. If the mother's prayers in Aleppo went unanswered, what makes me think my prayers for my son will be heard? If my prayers do get answered and the worst case scenarios don't come true in the US, I'm still upset. I want to know why children here were spared from violence when children in other countries weren't. Does it really just boil down to winning the birth lottery? Some children are lucky enough to be born in other countries and some aren't. I can accept evil as a parasite that only exists because there is good, but not when it comes to children's lives. I have a really hard time accepting that. So what, how should I pray? Obviously, I pray for safety and mercy for all children, but that's starting to feel hollow. Okay, guys, you're horrible. How do I do this? So here's what we're going to do with that question. That's going to be a podcast because that ties into what's prayer. How does it work? Why does it work the way that it works? How come it doesn't get answered? The birth lottery line is the killer line because it does seem like that, right? We're just lucky enough to be born here. If you're unlucky enough to be born there, and then you have verses in the Bible that talk about God arranging places of birth and times of birth so that you would reach out for him. Well, how does a kid in Aleppo who murdered at three or four have any chance of that? So I can't, any 30 second answer I give would offend the question. So that's gonna be a podcast, all right? That is a phenomenal question. So that's on my list for early next year. Let's talk about prayer and the problem of prayer. Sound good? Not that you have a choice. If God wants all to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, and eventually every knee will bow, Philippians 2, and all the ends of the earth and families of the nations will turn to the Lord, Psalm 22. Okay, we, get, we know who you are. 
And Jesus will reconcile all things to himself, Colossians 1, and there will be no more sorrow or pain, and the gates of New Jerusalem will never be shut, Revelation 21. And no one is abandoned by the Lord forever, Lamentations 3. And his love always perseveres and never fails, 1 Corinthians 13. How does that flow with a hopeless, endless hell for billions of people? We'll talk about it in January. (laughs) Do we get another chance after death? Does God ever give up on us? And if so, when? Dang! Such good questions. January. Next. (laughs) How is true Christian community involved in changing us into Christ's image? If we don't know one another closely and fellowship regularly and interpersonally, how can we fulfill Jesus' command to love one another just as he loves us and to be one just as he and the Father are one? Next, will Vox Church develop an emphasis on home fellowships? It depends what we mean by home fellowships. If you mean the classic small group studies that become insulated and focused on just the meeting of needs of Christians, no, we will not emphasize that even remotely. What we will emphasize are something called table fellowships, which the holiday parties were anticipatory of. Table fellowships are simple meals extended by invitation to the Vox community, but ultimately are aimed for those outside of it. We think the kitchen table can change the world. And so we practice table fellowship here every week by taking the bread and the cup. We call it the Lord's table, even though it's on a stage. We want people to practice table fellowship in the community so there will be some Voxers who will open up their homes for people in the Vox community and their guests to come and to break bread together and to share a meal together, absolutely. But the goal of those isn't just that we form tight-knit little clubs. The goal for those is that there there are a a certain crew of us who decide we don't want to just do that with Christians. We want to do that with our neighbors. And so if home fellowships just mean another Bible study, if home fellowships just mean another small group experience, many of us who come from churches have already experienced those things. That's not what we're aiming for. So it all depends on your definition whether or not we would say yes. Next. Oh. So if we die before Jesus comes again, where are we waiting? In heaven? All right, so Paul, when he talks about dying, talks about him being with the Lord. When uh, Jesus is on the cross, he looks at uh, the thief and says, today you'll be with me in, which, uh, which is a garden image. So, so there's a big debate about are we awake when we are with Jesus in the intermediate state, because we're not resurrected, we don't have bodies. So are we consciously awaiting the return of God and with him in a way where we know, or is it soul sleep, what some, some people call, or in the Old Testament, it was the idea of Sheol. It, it's, it's, you're just waiting for the resurrection to come. Don't know the answer to that personally. I've tried to have some near-death experiences. They haven't been successful. I'm hoping to get a glimpse of the bright light, but it's not happened yet. So I really don't know, and the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. Paul uses the image, we're with the Lord. Jesus used the image, of you'll be with me in paradise. I got nothing else beyond that. All right, great question. And then lastly, where are the communion croissants located? (laughs) We're working on that. January. All right, now. Woo! You guys are awesome. And these 
Even if we don't answer them directly, the reason we put them on the screen is to say if you have these questions, you're not alone, that it's safe to ask these questions and to have these doubts. The last thing we, that God is interested in you doing is pretending. Faith is not just the striking and strengthening up of some psychological certainty. Faith is something far richer and more beautiful than that. So, um, I'm sorry whenever I say, hey, wait, but you guys are forming and shaping the conversation in our community through this, and I absolutely love it, all right? Hannah B., we're going to read. It's Advent, so let's stand for a moment, if we would. We're going to do a little Advent reading. Izzy and the crew are going to come out. The voice of Advent, Hannah Erie. It's from Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter... 11. Okay. <laughs> In the last Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The voice of Advent, Hannah Erie. Ladies and gentlemen. And the songs of Advent, Izzy Ray. Man, you guys sound good. Holy cow. Did you hear them? Or did you... One time, one time, they told me that my mic was in their ears, and you don't want to hear me sing. You don't, I can't imagine how you played and heard that in your ears. I don't, I don't understand what kind of train wreck that was. So brothers and sisters, all right, just a reminder, um, not all of you come on time, and we bless that, man. We bless, we bless the 10-minute late arrival. We bless that. We bless it. It's tough. It is tough to get here. I want to remind you, though, this time next week, you should be at your house or your family's house or your neighbor's house opening presents and eating breakfast casserole, correct? We will not be here. We are meeting Saturday, all right? And, and here's our Christmas Eve service. Are you ready? We're going we're gonna to do scripture to tell the story. We're going to sing the story. There'll be a brief 10-minute reflection, and we're out. There'll be some candles, fake candles, just for our... Uh, rental facility and contract, and, um, and that's what we're going to do, all right? So that's, um, that's next Saturday, and then New Year's Day, we will be here, 9 and 11. Um, we'll see you all at the 11, so it'll be, <laughs> it'll be great. All right, let's do a little Christmas story this morning, guys. Enough hell, enough hell. Let's go to Luke chapter, Luke chapter 2. Let's, let's get all Linus on this. Charlie Brown Christmas special, anybody? Anybody? Nothing? No? No one got the reference? Okay, a couple people. Nice. Oh, oh, okay. All right. I enjoy Linus. 
Um, and uh, chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now, uh, the phone number is on the screen. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can follow along on the screen. Ask questions. Uh, I'm going to throw some stuff at you that maybe you've not heard before. Um, and if so, you don't have to take my word for it. Study it yourself to see. Uh, but I've always had a question about these guys and their appearance in the story. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, it's always been a nice, like, nativity scene sort of thought. But shepherds in Jewish culture, there, there was a bit of ambivalence about shepherds. On the one hand, there were some very famous shepherds, like right? David being the most famous, right? God's leaders were often called shepherds. God himself is pictured as a shepherd. But when the real-life nitty-gritty, like, ugliness of shepherding comes into play, shepherds are usually designated ceremonially unclean. <laughs> um, uh, around dung, uh, all the time, they couldn't get to Jerusalem all the time for the festivals. And so you read things like this. A man should never teach his son the occupation of a shepherd or a tavern keeper, because these are all trades of robbers. So, and this is later, this is after Jesus' day, but, but shepherds uh, didn't have a reputation for honesty. They did not have a rep, they, in, in fact, in some later instances, we have examples of shepherds not being allowed to testify in a court of law. In fact, next slide, there's a very famous question about dog bread in the Mishnah. And, and <laughs> Kelly was like, do you mean dog bread, like B-R-E-D, or dog breed? Nope, it's dog bread that way. So, so the command in the, in the scriptures was to tithe on all of your food. And the question was, well, what about the food we give our dogs? It was called dog bread. And how do we know what we tithe on? Do we tithe on dog bread? And then, and then here was the test that was given. If a shepherd will eat it, it's considered food, and you have to tithe on it. If a shepherd won't eat it, it is considered dog bread. All right? So, so shepherds, kind of, kind of like a bit of ambivalence. On the one hand, it's a picture of God's faithfulness and care for his people through a king. And on the other hand, they weren't terribly highly respected. So when the Christmas story begins, and there were shepherds, you know, uh, on the hillsides keeping watch over their flock at night, we just sort of romanticize this instantly, right? It becomes a nice part of a nativity scene. But these shepherds, I think, had a very specific purpose. So we're going to wander into the Old Testament for a while and then come back to these shepherds. All right, go to Genesis uh, chapter 35. I want to introduce you to a place called Migdal Eder. And um, you're very familiar with it, I know, from your Old Testament readings, of course. Genesis 35. I think I'm funny. Verse 19. Genesis 35. If you don't know where Genesis is, page 1. And then go to verse 35, just to be clear. Verse 19. So Rachel, this is Isaac's wife, Rachel died and was buried on the way to, and then it gives a word, that is Bethlehem, okay? Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel, Jacob, moved on again and pitched his tent beyond what? Migdal Eder. Now, Migdal Eder, the, the Hebrew phrase just means tower of the flock, 
All right, so, so it, it's a watchtower that shepherds would use to oversee large herds of sheep. So here are a couple examples of what it might, might have looked like. So that's the remains today of one. The hillside, see, in, in Israel, you don't have lots of flat land. Uh, you, do, you do have parts, but it, it gets really hilly, and so the grazing uh, of sheep was, was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Next, this is what it may have looked like. Back in the day, something like that. And then, and then around these, around the tower next, you'd have these little stalls or little mangers. Because what would happen, according to some historical sources, what would happen um, is that uh, during lambing season, um, you would have lambs that you would wrap in swaddling cloths and you would place them in mangers, um, uh, particularly if those lambs were destined for sacrifice because uh, you, the, the sacrifices required were sacrifices that were required to be without blemish and without mark or without spot. To go if you were to the book of Exodus, Israel needed lots of sheep for their sacrificial system. So in Genesis, we read of a place, a watchtower called Migdal Eder. In Exodus, we read about the need for sheep. Uh, and in Leviticus, there were two sheep that were to be offered in Jerusalem every day, uh, mid-morning and mid-afternoon. Uh, and so how many days, how many sheep is that? Two sheep a day for 360, whatever Israel's calendar is. So that's like, let's call it seven, over 700 sheep, correct? Math. I got it. Rounding. I love rounding. I love rounding in body types. I love rounding with mathematics. Now, so you have those sheep, but then you had sheep for a festival called Passover. Passover uh, is a festival that celebrated Israel's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. And God did something uh, very powerful during the 10th plague of his war against the Egyptian gods. And God commanded Israel in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So that's how significant this event was. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then it goes on to talk about how you anoint the doorposts and the, the mantle of the door and how the angel of death would pass over and all kinds of glorious stuff. Now, and this is, remember, Charlton Heston was central in all of this. Some people are like, who's that? Now, that's Moses. That's when we get to the new earth, Moses is going to look like Charlton Heston. They're going to look at each other and say, twinsies. Now, is the sweat that obvious? Am I the only one sweating today? The only one in all of Orange County that didn't wake up and go, oh my goodness, it's in the 30s. All right, now, thank you, Mr. Andy. Now, we read in Genesis about a place near Bethlehem called Migdal Eder. We read in Exodus about the need for lots of sheep. 
Then we come across a really obscure passage in something called the Mishnah. Now look at me, this is so fascinating. The Mishnah was the codification of Jewish oral tradition around 200 AD, but sometimes reflects practices that were true of Jesus' day. So here's a very obscure passage in the Mishnah. This is why I get paid the big bucks. Next. This is what it says. Cattle found all the way from Jerusalem to Migdal Eder and in the same vicinity in all directions are considered if male as whole offerings and if female as peace offerings. Rabbi Jehuda says if they are fit for Passover offerings, they may be used for such purposes. Next, providing Passover is not more than 30 days off. This passage has led some historians to believe, and here we get a little bit of the point, that the sheep watched at Migdal Eder were destined for Passover sacrifices. In other words, shepherding near Bethlehem wasn't just random shepherding. It was actually shepherding a flocks that were destined for sacrifice. Hence the need when it was lambing season to take a newborn lamb and to wrap it in swaddling cloths and to place it into a manger to make sure and examine it for blemish or spot. All right, are you with me so far? Do you see the train coming? Do you see the train coming? One last piece of the train. Go to Micah. Woo! Nobody? All right, I'm going to Micah. You don't even, see, you don't even have to. Look at it. It's right there. But I'm going just to practice. If you don't know where Micah is, it's right after Jonah. Now, very famously, there was an Old Testament prophecy about where the Messiah was to be born. Where was the, where was the Messiah to be born? Oh, little town of? And here it was. But you, Bethlehem, weird name, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In other words, remember King Herod, later he meets the Magi, and the Magi say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews, which was him. And Herod is a little offended that they're not looking for him. They're looking for a, a child that had just been born. And so he has, he, Herod has um, his kind of, his own wise men consult the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, yeah. the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. All right? Now, this one is out of nowhere. If you flip back to Micah 4... <coughs> There's a case to be made that the ancient rabbis thought that the Messiah wouldn't just be born anywhere in Bethlehem, but would be born at Migdal Eder, which would explain why the shepherds know where to find Jesus without being given direction. So check out Micah chapter 4, verse 8. Are you following all this? There's a lot of these little strands. Joanne, are you following this? Okay. She teaches at a seminary, so if she can follow it, I'm assuming the rest of us can. <laughs> I don't even know what that meant. <laughs> Micah chapter 4. Notice verse 8. As for you, watchtower of the flock. What's that phrase in Hebrew? Migdal Eder. As for you, Migdal Eder, 
stronghold of daughter Zion. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, I know that's like a whole bunch of Old Testament. You're like, Whoa, former dominion, that's David. Uh, Bethlehem was the city of David. Former, uh, the former dominion of David will be restored in Bethlehem. But as for you, watchtower of the flock, some rabbis thought that it was going to happen specifically there. In fact, later uh, writing, this is, um, oh my goodness, this is called a targum. Okay, look at me. Whew. All right, are you guys okay? Yeah. I'm doing great, but I want to make sure you're okay. All right, now, Israel, years before this, went into exile, okay? Many Israelites stopped speaking Hebrew, while they were in exile, and they spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the empire that was hosting them. When they came back, many Israelites did not have a working knowledge of Hebrew. And so what began to happen is that priests or teachers of the law or scribes would get up, read it in Hebrew, and then explain it in Aramaic. The Aramaic explanations were called targums. And it would be like me reading Greek and then explaining it to you in English and adding commentary as I went, okay? A targum, oh, I know, I'm sorry. I thought this was a good idea. I'm maybe rethinking this. <laughs> a targum that combines Migdal Eder in Genesis and Micah 4.8 reads like this. And this is an example of people thinking the Messiah was going to come at Migdal Eder, okay? He spread his tent beyond Migdal Eder. That's from Genesis. The place where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. So at least at some point, there was a thought that Migdal Eder, it's not just Bethlehem in general, it's Migdal Eder that would be the place the Messiah was being revealed. Are you with me so far on this? Hello, talk to me. Hello, yes? Okay, go back to Luke chapter 2. See, that's beautiful. We've got Hebrew, Luke chapter 2. Now let's read the rest of the story. We don't know for certain that these were the shepherds and that these were the flocks destined for Passover. I think a good case can be made. So I'm going to assume it, and that's all I'm doing is assuming it for the sake of the Christmas story, just to have you entertain the idea that these weren't 35-year-old men in bathrobes sitting around drinking you know, some late-night coffee, and then all of a sudden angels show up. But this was a very deliberate fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that would indicate the kind of saving this child would be doing. Okay, so you read this. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. If what we've suggested is true, these were the shepherds that were in charge of determining whether or not the lambs destined for sacrifice were without defect or not. Okay, these aren't just random people, in other words. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Remember angels? What's the first thing they have to teach you in angel training school? What do you say? The first thing you got to say every time an angel appears, do not be afraid, because evidently angels are terrifying. So you can put them on top of your tree, and they laugh at us. They laugh at the little angels. 
They're up there going, if you only knew. <laughs> but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, which was a Caesar Augustus word, of great joy that will cause, excuse me, good news that will cause great joy for who? For all the people. Roman good news was good news for Rome. This was good news for everybody. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now, a Savior is another Caesar word. Caesar called himself Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And this, see, I never understood this. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, why is that a sign? Isn't that just kind of how, it'd be like me saying, hey, uh, we just had a, a kid um, uh, go to Hogue Hospital, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby in a baking tray, you know, under a heat lamp or something. I mean, you just go, no, that's... Uh, that, if, it were, if, it were what, if it were what you did to every baby, then that's not a sign, correct? But if you're a shepherd and your shepherding includes watching the sheep that are destined for Passover sacrifice, and that includes wrapping newborn lambs in swaddling cloths and placing them in a manger then could you see how that would be a sign that the shepherds would appreciate that no one else would have understood? So it's not just that God appears to random shepherds, I think, and it's not just that here's just this random sign. It's no, 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 no. Think about the juxtaposition you've just received. Savior, King, Messiah, Lord, manger, swaddling clothes. How crashing that must have been to them. But what was their job when something was in the manger? It was to examine it to see if it was without defect. Now, when you get to the end of Jesus' life, when does Jesus show up? Palm Sunday, which is the day Passover lambs were chosen. And when does Jesus die? Jesus dies when the Passover lambs were slaughtered. Jesus, if you study, was examined for four days just the way the lambs were to be examined for four days in the temple during the last week of his life. And Pilate declares Jesus to be without defect. I mean, you have the very beginning of the story and the very end of the story crashing together in the image of Passover. So it's not just that God shows up and, yeah, he's a baby. It's that, no, 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 no. He comes to the very people responsible for overseeing the lambs that would be used for sacrifice. And he comes to them in a way that would have fit that imagery perfectly. Make sense? I think this is good stuff. You guys seem bored. I love this stuff. We're not bored. No, I'm bored. <laughs> All right, I'm bored. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. Oh, so much in that phrase. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that God has happened. Now Bethlehem was huge, and it was the name of the region, not just the city. It wasn't huge, but it was bigger than it is now. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. 
When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. Who are the only people that see the angels? So everybody else hears this from the shepherds. I just find that fascinating. Remember the ambivalence about shepherds? They weren't considered entirely trustworthy. I mean, I love how God does this stuff. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, pondered them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, to me, this makes the, very, the Christmas story very interesting in a couple of ways. Number one, it ties bits and pieces of Old Testament prophecy together in ways that we know that Jesus was wont to do. So we love that. Secondly, the shepherds don't, they, they turn out to, not to be these incredibly romantic sort of passive figures, but they're central to the imagery of Luke's story, right? And you would have known if you were Jewish reading this account in the first century, all this background probably, when you, when you read the, the Christmas story or heard it read to you. But the thing I love most is the constant element of surprise. Like, of course Jesus is coming fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, but he always does it in a way that nobody expects. Right? The Christmas story begins with an announcement to Zechariah. In the book of Luke, Zechariah was a man, he was old, he was a priest, he had a lineage. Okay, in Jewish culture, that's like, that's like four pluses. And then immediately we read it about an announcement to Mary. Young, female, a nobody from nowhere, and no lineage we know of until later in the story. Zechariah is a priest offering sacrifice at a temple. Mary is a maiden sitting home doing whatever maidens did in the first century. <laughs> right? We have no idea. But she was nothing and nobody. He was everything. A priest, a man. He was old, offering sacrifice. An angel appears to him. He mishandles it, so he's silenced for nine months. Mary, the young female, single, but wed, uh, is going to be the one through whom Messiah comes. I mean, that juxtaposition, Messiah will come, but he's not going to come through the old male priest. He's going to come through the young girl. Or how does Messiah come? He comes to shepherds, and he comes to them in a way that they would have received and understood. I mean, I just, and the reason that's so compelling to me is this. We're convinced after 2,000 years, we understand exactly the way God works. And we've reduced the Christmas story to this nice little formula, this nice little picture snapshot on a card. We've removed the element of scandal and surprise. It just makes perfect sense to us. And I just want to keep reminding me and us, if you take the Christmas story seriously, then the last thing you should ever expect God to be is predictable. And so much of our Christianity is designed to make him that way. I do this, you do this, I do this. It's all contractual terms. But what the Christmas story does is we find Jesus in the unlikely. We find Jesus in the scandalous. We find Jesus in the forgotten. We find Jesus in the marginalized. We find Jesus speaking to people in a language that they would understand and appreciate. Why would we not think he's the same today? And so for me, the Christmas story is the reminder that the most unlikely people are the truest guides to Jesus. 
Not the religious professionals. That's, what, that's why I'm resigning. We'll let someone else talk next week. Although we won't be here on Sunday. But they're not the religious professionals. Right? They're the broken, the misfit, the outcast. They're us. And I love that the angels only appeared to untrusted messengers so that you really had to want to believe it in order to do so. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to celebrate it as a bit of surprise that this is where the manger led, that this is what the manger looked like, that from the very earliest beginnings we were getting the hint of why Jesus had come. We call him Emmanuel, but he was designated that because God is with us and will save us from our sins. And so it's not just that God comes and says, yep, me too, I understand life under the sun and between the trees. It's that God comes to rescue and to save. And so the table for us represents the celebration of the Christmas story, the collision of Easter and Christmas coming all together, the recognition that all of those who are far off, all of those who are outcast and exiled, all of those are welcome to come home and join the party. So as always, we're going to have the communion stations around, no croissants today, I'm sorry. But if you're in for gluten-free bread, there's bread over there, gluten-free option over there. Secondly, lots of us uh, are spending lots of money, and um, for some, we need practice uh, to be generous. We need discipleship. We need discipline. And so there's a crew of us that worship with money, and we, we honor God with money. And for those of us that do that, there are participation boxes around the room. December is always a huge month for churches as people are doing end-of-year giving. And if that's you, what a great problem to have throw some our way. Let's go. Um, <laughs> that was the lamest appeal in the history of the world. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to have, we always have folks up here and back there who um, not after they serve the elements would love to pray for you. And so we always, we always encourage people to come to receive prayer. And then lastly, we sing. And that singing can be um, standing up, that can be sitting, that can be just in silence or meditating. But regardless, we, we call this time response time. This is when we as a community react to the truth that we've heard. So let me pray and we'll practice. Lord God, thank you so very much for the ways in which you reveal yourself. And God, I'm so sorry that I so often would just prefer you to be prepackaged and, and predictable, simple and understandable. And God, thank you for the reminder of what you're like and what you do, that we might wake up to your work all around us, to look for you in the forgotten places, and to follow the most unlikely guides. And so to that end, God, we receive the bread and the cup not only in remembrance, but also in anticipation that you are at work now, that you are returning, and that we are to be the unlikely messengers of good news to the world. So to that end, we ask that you would meet with us, receive our worship, in the name of Jesus our Christ, amen. A week from today, 
a week from right now. I'm going to be eating breakfast casserole right now, a week from today. Hey, can we thank these guys that, that, who are so generous with their time and their gifts? And would you stand? So uh, just a couple reminders. First, if you are new to our community, go to voxoc.com and you can find out more about us. Let us know that you were here. There are cards you can fill out on the way out and stick into one of the participation boxes. Um, secondly, Saturday, 4.30, 6 o'clock, we will be here and not be here Sunday and the New Year's Day, we will be here as well. I thought uh, kind of as we do our blessing today that we would take a moment to pray about what's happening in the world. Um, uh, the tragedy in Aleppo is so symbolic of, of parts of the world that we just are not, not even on our radar. And so I thought maybe we could just take a moment uh, of silence and then I will pray and uh, we'll go together, okay? So if you would just take a moment uh, to lift up to God a cry out for justice and mercy and peace in your world and in the world and then I'll close this. So God, we lament a world where there is such evil and suffering. We hate, we hate it with every fiber of our being. We lament a world where cancer holds so much power, where war and murder and violence are seen by many as the only option. Father, we lament a world where kids are murdered and slaughtered, where people are beheaded, we just hate it. And we cry out to you that you would come quickly to put the world back to the way that you intended. And that in the meantime, we, your people, would be courageous ambassadors of reconciliation, finding our place in the work that you have for us. God, we pray in the name of Jesus for your justice and your peace your grace and your truth to flood into the earth that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and as God's people we say amen go in grace Merry Christmas see you Saturday Water. park Water. nicely no road rage by Jesus people learn more about participation in the Vox community at voxoc.com participate <laughs>